Kevin Harrington, an original shark from the hit TV show Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass scene on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite, the four mindset shifts for senior leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there. My name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia, also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, this guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dolph is a, just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership. My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of thebeardclub.com. And I'd just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Apjohn, one of those, AKA the strategy man. And if I'm gonna describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous, deep, and conscious. And that's exactly what you need from leadership right now. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, original member of the Jamaican Bobsled team, three-time Olympian, author, speaker, philanthropist, he is one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet, an amazing interviewer, but at the same time, an amazing speaker. Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm a futurist, executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead, and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are going to be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status, taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise, genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Burgoff, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I Call Bullshit, Live Your Life, Not Somebody Else's. Dov Barron, to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there, I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations. Hi there, my name is Rick Barker. I am the founder of the Music Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Bilyeu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well thought out ideas, often counterintuitive, which is what 
makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter. May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy said in a speech before Congress, we choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. In the last few years, Elon Musk and others like him have been speaking about building sustainable bases on Mars that can serve as actual, actual cities and sustaining a population of about a million people. Here's what I'm curious about. That day, on July 20th, 1969, for those of us who were old enough to remember it, was without doubt a where-were-you-when moment. In many ways, it changed us as a species. It changed the way we saw possibilities. It changed our technology and technology that's still impacting us today. But there's one more changed, one more thing that changed as a result of space travel, and that is the ability to look back at the Earth. And no one was more changed by that than those who had the opportunity to leave the Earth and look back, referring to something known as the overview effect. I'm curious, how would we as individuals, how would we change our view of the world? How would we see this planet ourselves if we were looking back with that overview effect. Well, my guest on this episode of Curiosity Bites is the man who coined the phrase, the overview effect, Mr. Frank White. He is one of the forefathers of the investigating the impacts of space travel on us and how we see ourselves and how we see our planet. He is a space philosopher and an author. Like I said, he coined the term the overview effect, and it's been used in every movie and documentary about space travel that I've ever seen, including uh, One Strange Rock, which uh, is a fabulous, beautiful documentary with astronauts and Will Smith narrating it. Um, magnificent. Uh, he also developed, aside from uh, developing the theory of the overview effect, he's described it as a shift in the world view experience. Astronauts have said this to him in the interviews that he's done. In fact, he has authored eight additional books on space exploration in the future, including The SETI Factor, Decision Earth, and Think About Space, and March of the Millennia, both who were written with the amazing Isaac Asimov. The Overview Effect is now in its fourth iteration. There's a film uh, called The Overview Effect, which is based on his work with na nearly 8 million views on Vimeo. His more recent book, The Cosma Hypothesis, this one right here, offers a comprehensive plan for exploring and developing the solar system. So ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the OG of space philosophy, Mr. Frank White! Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I'm really glad to have you here, mate. I know it took a long time for us to get together. I'm glad you're well, and I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, I know we have some friends in common, and it's very cool. But I always want to start this show by asking you, what are you most curious about? What do you find yourself really curious about these days? Well, I would say that I'm most curious now about the, the next step 
in human evolution into the universe, which is large numbers of people experiencing the overview effect. And we see that happening and we can talk more about that. And then beyond that, as you mentioned, there is significant discussion about large numbers of human beings living in other parts of the solar system. Mm -hmm. And I say other parts of the solar system because we, you know, we always have to keep in mind the earth is in the solar system. Yeah. So when we talk about moving out into the solar system, we never want to think we're leaving the earth behind because we're not. That's a, that's a, that right there is in and of itself quite fascinating. I don't know that we tend to think that way. I think that we are, you know, I don't think I know that we are very tribal and a tribe is an extension of the ego. And so the extension of the ego is there's me. Okay. How does that extend? There's my family. Then there's my tribe, you know, whether that's, you know, the tribe of, uh, of Americans or Brits or whatever it might be, but it's your tribe. And I've always wondered what happens to that tribal mentality when we leave the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I wonder, I really do wonder, even as I listen to this stuff from people like Elon Musk and, and others, do we, do we lose our tribe of earthlings and become tribes of Martians? Because, you know, if in fact it happens the way that they're talking about it, children may be born on Mars, they would be Martians, right? right? So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting thing because, you know, you're only an American because you were born in America by some fluke. So if you're born on Mars, are you a Martian? You know, it's, it's an interesting tribal mentality, isn't it? So I like what you just said there about understanding that we, you know, so are we earthlings? Or are we solar system people? Yeah, solarians. <laughs> solarians, there you go. Solarians, are we solarians? So yeah. we, go on. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we do know a lot about what happens when people go into orbit or go to the moon, mm -hmm. which is a, uh, uh, you know, a harbinger of what happens when you go yes. to Mars. But certainly almost every astronaut will say, when I first got into orbit, I looked for my hometown I looked then for my country, I identified with those, and then increasingly I identified with regions, and then I identified with planet Earth. Uh, what I considered home was the Earth and not my hometown. So we know from talking to astronauts that that shift starts right then and there. Another point we need to make, you mentioned Mars, uh, being in orbit and going to the moon is quite different because the moon is much further away than low earth orbit from the earth. So that overview effect, that shift in mentality is even more powerful mm -hmm. you know, because now you see the earth actually suspended in the universe and you begin to have a greater sense of the universe, the cosmos, if you will. And, but I should say, going back to Mars, that's really different too, because if you're in low Earth orbit or on the moon, you see the Earth as we think of it. Right. You the see blue marble? Yeah. 
if you're on the surface of Mars, you're going to see a point in the sky. If you were born on Mars and you've never been to Earth, it's an abstract concept for you in a way. So it's going to be very, very different for future humans. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think one of the interesting things about it is putting things in perspective, which is always a, a great challenge for us humans. We, we are micro uh, uh, rather than macro. And, and so the, the interesting thing about it for me is that, you know, uh, where do you, you know, I use an analogy and I say, you know, you live in a valley and you don't know what exists outside of that valley. But one day you're brave enough to climb to the top of the, uh, of the hill and look down and you see your own valley in a very different way than you've ever seen it. But you yeah. also see the expanse that's beyond the valley. Yeah. And it, the further you get away, the smaller where you are it seems and the vastness of everything else seems. And, and that perspective piece you just brought up there, which is, you know, it's one thing to be um, out, you know, in looking back at Earth from a reasonable range where you can see the big blue marble, and even from the moon where you can still see it, and then to understand that on Mars, you would know where to look for it because you're, you're probably trained to see that dot over there is, is, is Earth. But if you're born on, on Mars, it's a nothing more than a concept. That is like, yeah. that right there is deserving of some contemplation, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's it suddenly is. like, so hold on a second. That dot over there is where people are warring, killing each other about religion or about philosophy. Like, what the hell's wrong with these people? Hmm. I, 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 I really love that idea. Um, and so I, I'll tell you, I just want to say this right up front. I have no particular desire to travel to another planet. I would like to have the overview effect. I would love that. I would love to appreciate this beautiful planet <laughs> I live on. Um, but I don't have any particular desire to go to Mars or any of those kinds of things. Um, but I think I am definitely in favor of everybody having that overview effect to say, what are we scrapping about? Yeah. Right? I mean, I think that we get so small-minded, right? And again, astronauts, when I interview them, they'll say that over and over again. I looked back and I saw a planet without borders or boundaries. Uh, you know, we went around that planet every 90 minutes. We watched sunrise and sunset. And, you know, we began to see the Earth as a spaceship spaceship earth yeah began to see it as a planet that's part of the solar system and the kinds of issues that divide us seem petty yeah and we you know from that perspective it's difficult to understand the mentality that we have on the surface but astronauts are smart people and they realize when they come back to the surface you know, they'll retain that memory, but they'll be put back into the, yep. the situation, you know, that you talked about. But there is that moment of insight. And that's why many of us in what we call the overview movement, our goal is to bring the overview effect down to earth. And it 
in a way has little or nothing to do with space exploration. It has to do with how we beha behave here. And so I have said, I believe the overview effect experience should be a human right. You say you want to have it. I want to give it to you. Right. I believe the world would be a much better place if many, many more of us had that same insight that astronauts have had, either through virtual reality or through an actual trip into orbit. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's not, it's not, um, accessible, <laughs> certainly at this, at this time to the average person doesn't look like it will be accessible to the average person for some time, let's say. Um, but VR is possible and getting more and more possible. And the experience of having a VR experience of the overview effect would be, I think, amazing. Um, I, again, you know, like I was saying earlier, we are tribal and we get very tribal about things. And I'm always, always interested in how do we give people the experience of another? I mean, as you, you and I talked about, not here on recording, but before, is that one of the reasons I wanted to make this show, create this show, Curiosity Bites, is because I believe curiosity is the cure for the world's ills. Uh, because if we can stay curious about each other, we can learn, we can grow, in our, and the borders in our mind, as well as the borders in our world, come down because we want to know. And that anything that can make us, it's interesting that anything that can, you know, our ego is all about being big, but anything that can make us smaller and give us a view of a bigger picture makes us better human beings. Mm -hmm. is, do you see that that way too? Is that your experience of it? I think if, yeah, I, I do. I think if we can see ourselves as part of a species mm -hmm. uh, where no matter how different we are within that species, we are more like each other than we really understand. Um, again, an astronaut perspective that I picked up in talking to them that they, they see their tribe as the human tribe. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I'm doing some work with uh, two colleagues at Harvard on conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And one of the people who I'm working with is Dan Shapiro, who has done practical work with many people on conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And he's defined something he calls the tribes effect. Right. And it's pretty much what you're describing, where mm -hmm. you're very locked into your perspective of who you are and who the other is. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to give that perspective up, no matter what. You know? No. It would take a change in your fundamental identity to give it up, right? Absolutely. And in his book on the topic, he clearly lays out the overview effect as the alter ego or the opposite of the tribes effect. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can wipe out tribes. No. But you can make people see the real tribe is humanity. Yeah. As I said, we but start out with the tribe being our family and then it expands out from there. But right. the, the smaller we get, the bigger the tribe is of inclusion. Um, because there's another interesting thing I, I said, uh, 
you know, I, I did a, a survey years ago. I put a thing up on Facebook and I said, um, named five other um, earthlings. That was all I put, right? You know, people put their friends and their mom and their dad or whatever it is, or they put, you know, something like that. And I said, later on, I waited for the whole bunch and I said, what about an alligator? <laughs> yeah. What about a cow? Yeah. Right? What about a fish? These are all earthlings. If we're going to think about the tribe of earthlings, they come in too. Yeah. You know, you, you go out sport hunting, which is beyond my imagination, but you know, you are hunting down earthlings. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that part of it is this understanding of, like I said, this concept of understanding a greater perception of something, getting beyond ourselves, beyond our own ego. And, and so you interviewed all these astronauts. So before we go into that, let's just have you tell our audience a little bit about who you are, that, because many people won't know who you are, who you are, and how it came about that you pursued this understanding. Okay, well, you know, I've told this story before that my first cousin, Anne uh, Howard, tells me that when we were five years old, I told her uh, that we were going to have to leave the planet someday. Um, five. <laughs> five years old. And that we were sitting in the parking lot of a grocery store waiting for our mothers to come out. And I said, you know, we're going to have to leave this planet someday. Planets don't last forever. Uh, we're going to have to go out and go live on other planets. Now, I have said many times, I don't remember that. But... Kind of uh, <laughs> Yeah. But when I was 10 years old, I lived in Germany because my father was in the army. And that's an interesting aspect of the overview concept where you, I see America differently because of that. Yeah. But uh, my mother gave me a book called Stars. It's a little astronomy book. It's still in print. And it just really impressed me. I just hadn't, in spite of what I was told by my cousin, I really at that point wasn't aware I'd given a lot of thought to astronomy. And, it, you know, you talk about curiosity. Mm -hmm. What struck me in reading that book was there was so much to be curious about. Planets, galaxies, stars, meteors, all of these things. And it just started a lifelong interest. And that lifelong interest evolved into science fiction uh, and astronomy and of course, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, I came of age in the 60s when people were becoming astronauts. Yeah. Uh, rockets were being launched and, you know, it was so exciting. Um, and so I really thought seriously about that. Mm -hmm. And I applied to the Air Force Academy, which seemed like a way to go. Mm -hmm. um, but it was interesting because fate intervened and my guidance counselor told me I should also apply to Harvard. And to please her, I applied to Harvard. Long story short, I got into both. Mm. So I had this fundamental choice, which right. way to go? Well, I chose Harvard because it really speaks to my strengths. I'm a social science, person, a humanities person, a writer, 
I'm interested in politics and government. Uh, the academy was very heavily oriented toward engineering and science. STEM, we would call it today. Yeah, STEM. Yeah. Yeah. So I chose Harvard. And, you know, long story short, again, that set in motion a long period of figuring out how do I, quote unquote, get into space? Yeah. I, I took a different path. And the obvious next step isn't there. Well, I got involved with the Space Studies Institute that was created by Gerard K. O'Neill from Princeton. And that was perfect because mm -hmm. they were looking for social scientists. They were looking for artists, astronauts. Everybody was welcome. And that led to the overview effect. I really have to thank Jerry O'Neill for that because I was flying cross country and I was obsessing about living in a space settlement. And his idea was not living on the surface of a planet, but creating these huge mega uh, settlements yep. between the earth and the moon. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, okay, I'm living on this space settlement. I'm looking at the earth. I'm flying cross country. I'm looking out at the ground. And it all kind of came together in, a, in an epiphany. And I said, if I lived in a space settlement, I would always have an overview of the earth. I would see it as interconnected. I would see it as a whole system. All these breakthroughs we've been trying to have spiritually, emotionally, uh, this breakdown of tribalism, mm -hmm. to a space settler, it would be obvious. Yes. It'd just be obvious, you know? That, right. And then the term overview effect came into my mind. And, um, I decided once the plane landed, I had to explore, is this real? Right. I mean, I think I had an experience of the overview effect in a mild form, you know? Yeah. I had that shift, I think. Right. So, I, you know, we landed and I immediately got in touch with NASA. And having been trained in social science, I wanted a huge sample. Right. to see if astronauts had had this experience. Mm -hmm. And so I called NASA, I talked to public affairs, and I said, I really have to interview all of the astronauts right away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, then. Okay, come on down. Sure, well, got nothing else to do. Why not? <laughs> sure. They're not, they're not doing anything. Exactly. Well, you know, the guy was very nice. He said, oh, they're pretty busy. I can't really have you interview every astronaut. But if you come to Houston, you can interview two. Right. Well, that was disappointing. Yeah, two, not exactly a large group. Small sample size. But then he said something that really kicked the research into high gear. He said, why don't you talk to retired astronauts? We don't control them. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't? I figured they did control sure. it, you know? And uh, he said, no, you know, call them up. And if they want to talk to you, they can talk to you. So that started the process. I did go to Houston and interviewed two astronauts, Jeff Hoffman, Don Lind. It was a great three or four days. Um, you know, just for me, it was kid in a candy store. I'd walk into yeah. the cafeteria. There's an astronaut, there's another astronaut. 
Um, they were just there, of course. And then talking to two active astronauts who were getting ready for missions was thrilling. And then uh, a friend of mine who, interestingly enough, he was involved in Space Studies Institute, Ryan O'Leary. Believe it or not, he had been selected to be an Apollo astronaut. And he resigned. He did not continue. He didn't mm. go. Um, he was a scientist. He was capable of doing it. He got interested in consciousness and other areas, and he decided he needed to take mm. a different path. But he put me in touch with my first retired astronaut, Joe Allen. And that was my first interview uh, for the book of a retired astronaut. So how many how many astronauts have you have you interviewed now overall? Do you know uh, 41. 41. Wow. That I personally interviewed. And then yeah. I've gathered other secondary material. And interesting too, um, I was at Johnson Space Center again. It was a very different trip this time. Uh, I was at Johnson Space Center in June of last year. I interviewed three astronauts on the space station, which was never something I'd done before. Mm -hmm. Seven other astronauts in a studio. And one of my colleagues there uh, has now picked up on the interview concept. And so he's doing interviews as well. And uh, incidentally, this has been turned into an excellent NASA social media uh, series called Down to Earth. Fabulous. These are short excerpts of these interviews and they're really good. They're really the overview effect right out of the astronauts experience. Fantastic. So that's how it all happened. Um, you know, I feel like, honestly, I feel like I've been guided. I think that uh, I am fulfilling a purpose mm -hmm. larger than myself. And yeah. the heroes of the story are the astronauts, right? Yeah. I am, everything I know, I'm communicating what they told me. But, but the, you know, there's a, uh, we're going to take a break in a minute, but bef before we do, I mean, there's something here that's really important. And that is that if you look at all the great, uh, explorers and all the great um, warriors, whether, you know, whether it's Alexander the Great, whether it's Genghis Khan, or whether it's Columbus, I mean, you know, <laughs> atrocities aside, um, there's, there's, there's somebody who rides along with them and is always telling that story for them. And it seems like in many ways, that's what you've been to astronauts. So I want to come back to that in a minute. We're going to take a little break and we'll be back with you in a few moments. Uh, please stay tuned. This is Curiosity Bites and you can catch part two just coming up real soon because we're here with Frank White, author and conceptualizer of The Overview Effect. 